the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Today we'll talk with uh, Doug Gaiman. He's the author of Before You Quit, Everyday Endurance, Moral Courage, and the Quest for Purpose. We'll also talk with Jeff Tracy. He's the host of two programs on our sister station, KPAM. Uh, the Cowboy Cook is the host of Barbecue Nation and Grilling at the Green. We're going to talk about some down-home cooking with the coronavirus blues. So he'll join us later in today's program. Well, today, believe it or not, is the first day of spring. It comes early this year. It began at 11.50 p.m. Eastern Time on the, the 19th, which, of course, what is that? 8.50 our time? 8, 9, 10, 11, 8.50 p.m. Uh, Pacific time. It's the earliest nationwide vernal equinox since ni- or rather 1896. Um, well, spring starts today all over the country. It is a bit weird, but that's what happened this time around. And again, it hasn't been this early since 1896. Um, perhaps you are mildly surprised by the fact, but today, if you look out the window, at least where we are, it looks like spring. So it occurs uh, every year um, around this time, typically a bit later around the 21st, 22nd, but this year it's today. So happy spring to you. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines, uh, as the coronavirus outbreak continued to disrupt American life, numerous actions have been taken in Washington, in state capitals, and at the local level to help you get uh, a grip on the situation that um, simultaneously threatens to spin out of control. In Washington, President Trump said Wednesday he would invoke the Defense Production Act to move design um, uh, rather, a move designed to help private businesses ramp up production and distribution of medical supplies and equipment needed to combat the virus, also known as COVID-19. If we need to use it, we'll be using it. The president said it's full speed ahead. Well, he hasn't yet invoked it, applying it to specific uh, needs, but says that that uh, could change in a matter of days. On a day that saw confirmed U.S. cases of the virus surpass 9,300 and deaths top 130, the president also signed a second coronavirus relief bill that called for providing paid sick leave, unemployment aid, and free testing to the public. The president and members of Congress also um, considered providing as much as $300 billion to the airline industry and other distressed businesses. Total projected government expenditures as high as $1 trillion, including proposed checks paid directly to the public. More on that later. Seemed contrary to everything the Republican Party normally preaches about fiscal responsibility, but these were unusual circumstances some party members noted. Well, coronavirus has reached Congress as two lawmakers announced that they had tested positive for the virus that has sickened more than 9,000 in the U.S. Sandy Patty also announced that she has uh, been uh, diagnosed with the coronavirus. It is no respecter of persons or positions. Representative Mario Diaz-Ballart, a Republican out of Florida, and Ben McAdams, a Democrat from Utah, both said Wednesday they had tested positive for COVID-19. Diaz-Ballart said that 
He had been stricken with a fever and headache last weekend, while McAdams said that he tested positive after developing mild cold-like symptoms on Sunday evening. As the news broke, Republican Whip Steve Scalise issued a statement saying that he would go into self-quarantine, although he said he didn't uh, uh, currently have any symptoms. Representative Ann Wagner said that she would also self-quarantine despite having no symptoms because last week she participated in a small meeting, a small group meeting with a colleague who has since tested positive for COVID-19. The virus already had affected others on Capitol Hill, which has remained closed to visitors. At least two congressional staffers have been infected by the virus, and some prominent politicians have self-quarantined at both the state and federal levels. Earlier this month, Senator Ted Cruz and Representative Paul Gosar, both Republicans and several other members of Congress, said that they would self-quarantine after they had possible exposure to the virus. Immigration and Customs Enforcement said on Wednesday that it will temporarily halt deportation efforts amid the coronavirus pandemic, except for those deemed a safety risk or under mandatory deportation order due to criminal history. The delay is intended to help mitigate the spread of the virus and to encourage people to seek testing and treatment, I said in their statement. During the COVID-19 crisis, ICE will not carry out enforcement operations at or near health care facilities such as hospitals, doctor's offices, accredited health clinics, and emergent or urgent care facilities, except in the most extraordinary of circumstances, the agency said. The statement added the agency would seek alternatives to detention, but didn't say what might happen to the approximately 37,000 current immigrant Uh, detainees. The Washington Post reported the agency said it would continue critical investigations into child exploitation, gangs, narcotics, trafficking, human sex trafficking, and terrorism. Representatives uh, Diaz Ballard and Ben Adams, first lawmakers to announce uh, testing positive for the coronavirus. Uh, They are in the House. And New York Stock Exchange will temporarily close the trading floor after two positive coronavirus tests there. No joke, Baltimore mayor is begging residents to stop shooting each other so hospital beds can be used for the coronavirus patients. And if I get coronavirus, uh, said uh, uh, said one, uh, I get uh, corona. If I get corona, I get corona. That's a quote from a Miami spring breaker saying the virus hasn't stopped them from partying. Admirable. 80% of U.S. coronavirus deaths are people 65 and older. You know, your parents and grandparents. Just saying. Well, younger adults make up big, a big portion of the coronavirus hospitalizations, however, in the U.S., according to the New York Times. Well, the um, outbreak could have been reduced by 95%, we have learned, if China had acted sooner. And the Dow? Dropped below 20,000 as the stock plunge threatens Trump's era, uh, rather Trump era gains. Most automakers have shut their North American plants and gas prices could hit 99 cents in some states due to the coronavirus and the supplies. Bernie Sanders uh, deactivated his 2020 campaign Facebook ads and the U.S. is imposing new sanctions on Iran seeking release of Americans. Well, on this day in history, Congress passed the first law establishing daylight saving time in the United States with clocks to be moved forward one hour from the last Sunday in March to the last Saturday in October. This law would be repealed in August of 1919, one year later. And on this day in history, 1920, the Senate rejects for a second time the Treaty of Versailles by a vote of 49 in favor, 35 against, falling short of the two thirds majority needed for approval. On this day in history, 1931, Nevada Governor Fred Balazar signs a measure legalizing casino gambling. 
1945, during World War II, 724 people are killed when a Japanese dive bomber attacks the carrier USS Franklin off Japan. The ship would be saved. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Taking a look at some of the events that took place, well, back in the day. 1945, on this day in history, Adolf Hitler orders the destruction of German facilities that could fall into Allied hands in his so-called Nero Decree, which would be largely disregarded. On this day in history, 1953, the Academy Awards ceremony is televised for the first time. The greatest show on earth is named Best Picture. 1979, the U.S. House of Representatives begins televising its floor proceedings. The live feed is carried by C-SPAN, Cable Satellite Public Affairs Network, which made its debut. 1993, on this very date, Supreme Court Justice Byron White announces plans to retire. His departure would pave the way for Ruth Bader Ginsburg to become the court's second female justice. And on this day in history, 2003, President George W. Bush orders the start of the war against Iraq. Because of the time difference, it's early March 20th there. And finally, on this day in history, 2013, Pope Francis officially begins his ministry as the 266th Pope, receiving the ring symbolizing the papacy and a wool stole exemplifying his role as shepherd of his 1.2 billion uh, strong flock during a mass at the Vatican. And hospitals are starting to see trouble, according to Dr. Peter Peter Atiyah. He says, just received word from the ICU doctor at a small New York hospital. They are officially out of ventilators and are now double venting patients with COVID-19 using the same ventilator for two infected patients. Do everything possible to avoid infection. Please isolate as best you can. Rod Dreyer, on the same subject, says, I keep hearing from people that it's their right to decide if they want to risk exposure to the virus. But this is where it ends, uh, where it ends up, burdening the overwhelmed hospitals. Enough about your rights. Think about your duties. The death toll in Italy jumped on Tuesday. We'll talk more about that momentarily. At the same time, China's health minister said Wuhan has no new cases yesterday, or at least had no new cases yesterday, the first time since they this began, according to the New York Post. The virus hit one New Jersey family hard, infecting seven killing three with others in the hospital. And it's also spreading quickly among the Hasidic Jewish community in Brooklyn, New York. In Italy, more than 2,000 are in ICU. Representative Ben McAdams and Representative Drew Ferguson uh, have been diagnosed with the coronavirus. The first two U.S. congressmen, TV journalist Richard Wilkins, believes he got it from Rita Wilson. You know, that Rita Wilson. And the Japanese flu drug effective in treating, is it effective in treating the coronavirus? That's the question that's being tested. Patients who were given the medicine in Shenzhen turned negative for the virus after a median of four days after becoming positive compared with a median of 11 days for those who were not treated with the drug, public broadcaster NHK says. In addition, x-rays confirmed improvements in lung condition and about 91% of the patients who were treated Uh, With this particular drug compared to 62 percent of those without it, the World Health Organization announced its multi-country clinical trial for potential coronavirus therapies, part of an aggressive effort to jumpstart the global search for drugs to treat COVID-19. And Oxford scientists have developed a test that can give results in 30 minutes. You can know almost immediately if you are carrying the virus.
Well, saying lawmakers need to take bold and swift action as soon as possible, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on Thursday introduced legislation to provide as much as $1,200 per person and $2,400 per couple in the U.S. amid the coronavirus outbreak and skyrocketing jobless claims. The draft legislation uh, would provide minimum payments of $600 and aid uh, would be phased down at adjusted gross income thresholds of $75,000 for individuals, $150,000 per couple. Additionally, there would be a $500 payment for each child. The rebate amount is slated to be reduced by $5 for each $100 in taxpayer income exceeds the legislation's threshold. The amount is therefore reduced to zero for single taxpayers with incomes exceeding $99,000 and $198,000 for joint filers. The IRS will determine income based on U.S. citizen taxpayers' 2018 tax returns. Mitch McConnell's proposal aligns with the Trump administration's push to swiftly send checks to American households. The legislation additionally contains numerous provisions geared to helping small businesses, including a delay of payments for employer payroll taxes, a delay of estimated tax payments for corporations, and modifications for net operating losses. McConnell's plan would provide $208 billion in loans and loan guarantees to distressed sectors of the economy, including $50 billion for commercial airlines, $8 billion for air cargo carriers, and $150 billion for other eligible businesses, but those loans would have to be paid back. In the opening salvo in the fast-track talks with Democrats as President Trump urges Congress to go big to respond to the American uh, who are reeling from the crisis. McConnell, um, speaking on the Senate floor, said that he wanted key Republicans to meet with Democrats on the relief bill known as S-3548 Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Security Act. These are urgent discussions and they need to happen as a, uh, at a member level. McConnell said, noting the White House will send key personnel to talk about the bill as they try to forge a compromise. And the number of people to have died from coronavirus in Italy has now surpassed China, where the disease originated, according to figures released today. The death toll over the past 24 hours rose by 427 to 3,405. Some 3,245 people have died in China since the virus first emerged there late last year. But Italy's outbreak only came to light on the 21st of February. Well, the developments come after the World Health Organization last week named Europe the new epicenter for the coronavirus pandemic. Since March the 9th, Italy has been under a nationwide lockdown meant to help curb the spread of the virus by effectively shutting down most aspects of public life. And the State Department advised United States citizens today to avoid all international travel due to the outbreak of coronavirus around the globe, urging Americans abroad to arrange for an immediate return to the U.S. unless they plan to stay out of the country for an indefinite period. It's been reported that the State Department would raise its global travel advisory to a level four do not travel, which is the most severe warning on state uh, state's advisory scale. The department made its official uh, made it official later in the afternoon. The Department of State advises U.S. citizens to avoid all international travel due to the global impact of COVID-19. The State Department statement said in countries where commercial departure options remain available, U.S. citizens who live in the United States should arrange for immediate return to the country unless they are prepared to remain abroad for an indefinite period. 
The State Department also warned that U.S. citizens living abroad should avoid all international travel. President Trump announced today that the Food and Drug Administration is making experimental drugs, including those used for treating malaria, available as part of the ongoing effort to tackle the spread of the coronavirus. The president announced at a White House press briefing that uh, chloroquine, a drug designed for use in malaria, has been FDA approved and will be made available by prescription almost immediately. He said it was one of the a number of antiviral therapies to limit the symptoms of the virus that the administration is trying to get to Americans as quickly as possible. I have a, I have directed the FDA to eliminate rules and bureaucracies so work can proceed rapidly, quickly and fast, he said. Redundant, but you get the point. We have no uh, uh, we have to remove every barrier while addressing potential safety concerns. The president noted that it had been used previously in treating malaria. So we know it uh, uh, if things don't go as planned, it's not going to kill anybody, he said. Um, he said it had uh, shown very encouraging early results. He also said another drug. Um, which I'm not going to attempt to pronounce, but begins with the letter R, would be made available to Americans as well by the process of compassionate use. He said it would remain to be seen whether uh, it would help combat the crisis. I think it could be a game changer or maybe not. It's the latest aggressive move by the administration as it seeks to stop both the spread of the virus and also curb the economic havoc caused by the closing of much of American daily life. As business, schools have shuttered to stop the infections. The president described a relentless effort to defeat the Chinese virus. And of course, the use of that word was is considered controversial as well. Well, chloroquine, one of the drugs that I mentioned, uh, has been used to prevent and treat malaria. It's uh, shown some promise in being a potential treatment. On Wednesday, the World Health Organization announced a multi-country clinical trial of four drugs for COVID-19, and chloroquine is one of them. It's widely available now, can be used off-label, but the FDA commissioner explained that officials want a formal study to get good information on its safety and effectiveness. The drug was first used to treat malaria in 1944. When people become infected with COVID-19, the virus protein spikes Um, bind to receptors on the outside of human cells. Chloroquine has worked by interrupting that process with SARS. It could potentially interfere with COVID-19's ability to bind to cells as well. The way that it um, worked against SARS was by preventing the attachment of the virus to the cells. Chloroquine interfered with the attachment to that receptor on the cell membrane surface, says Dr. Lynn Horovitz, a pulmonologist and internist at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City. Uh, So it's disrupting a lock and key kind of mechanism of attachment. So there is at least some hope, if not promise, with the use of this drug with this particular um, viral infection. And citing Chinese threats to disrupt the supply of pharmaceutical products, the communist nation exports to the United States and plunge America into a mighty sea of coronavirus. Senator Tom Cotton and Representative Mike Gallagher introduced a bill. We talked about it yesterday. Uh, to cut U.S. reliance on pharmaceutical products coming from China. The Chinese Communist Party threatened to cut off America's access to vital drugs in the midst of a pandemic caused by its own failures, Cotton said in a statement announcing the bill. It's time to pull America's supply chain for life-saving medicine out of China and make the CCP pay for contributing to this global emergency. Well, a release announcing the bill says it would task an FDA registry with tracking drug ingredients, ban the federal government from buying drugs with a supply chain that originates in China, require drugs to be labeled with 
the name of the country where they came from and provide benefits to manufacturers who make their drugs or medical equipment in the U.S. The bill would go into effect in 2022. The Chinese Communist Party's outrageous threats to withhold life-saving drugs from the U.S. endangers public health and should open our eyes to our dangerous over-reliance on China in our medical supply chain. Gallagher said this is a national security imperative that's that to many Americans, it is a matter of life and death. It's past time for us to develop an aggressive plan to move critical pharmaceutical supply chains away from China. Again, that bill introduced earlier today by Senators Tom Cotton and Representative uh, Mike Gallagher uh, in both the House and the Senate. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show later in the second hour of the program. We're going to talk about, well, what to do before you quit. We'll also talk with Jeff Tracy, the cowboy cook. That's what they call him. He's the host of Barbecue Nation and Grilling at the Green. We're going to talk about some down-home cooking with the coronavirus blues. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the New York Stock Exchange will simply be closing the floor, but will remain open for trades amid the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, They shut down the trading floor as of Monday after two people associated with the facility tested positive, as one would expect, I suppose, for the coronavirus. The exchange will shift to all electronic trading for the time being. The NYSE said that uh, trading activity and regulatory oversight would proceed without interruption. Um, they, the trading floors provide unique value to users and investors, but our markets are fully capable of operating in an all-electronic fashion to serve all participants, and they will proceed in that manner until we can reopen the trade floor to members. So um, another casualty, if you will, short-term of the coronavirus. Well, the coronavirus market contagion has cleaved billions of dollars off the value of Oregon's public pension fund investments and significantly increased the system's unfunded liabilities. Now, this is another underlying concern. What is the coronavirus or at least the impact of the virus and our attempt to uh, flatten that curve? What impact is that going to have on pension funds? Well, the declines uh, almost 25 percent year to date in its publicly traded stock alone are among the worst case scenario for the financial health of the fund after Oregon lawmakers decided last year to delay repayment of the system's existing $25 billion deficit by a decade in order to protect schools and other public employees from rapidly increasing pension costs. Well, the financial fallout won't be felt by taxpayers or public employees for years because the delays in how the public employees retirement system sets pensions contribution rates. In the meantime, however, the funded uh, status um, of the of the system is going to take a major hit and the state won't be making catch up payments. The legislature's decision to delay repayment was significantly misguided. That's what John Thomas, a Eugene financial advisor who chaired the PERS board until last year, says he called the move hocus pocus accounting. Well, Thomas also said that the PERS board didn't step up to their fiduciary duty as well and lower their investment return assumptions to bring more money into the system. Even if we see a market correction, he said, trying to get back from a 30 percent drop, especially when corporate earnings are not going to come back like a freight train is going to be very difficult. It is impossible to say precisely how much value the pension funds has lost year to date, as much of it is invested in private equity and real estate that are valued valued in quarterly appraisals, not daily market values. But one chief investment officer for the Oregon Treasury Investment Management Division offered a blunt assessment, saying it's big. So another hit to PERS.
And while it has been widely reported that older people are the most vulnerable to the coronavirus outbreak, more young adults than expected will be hospitalized due to the virus. That's a quote from Dr. Peter Hoditz. Uh, On Thursday, we're still early in this epidemic, up to around 10,000 cases in the United States. But so far, unfortunately, that's a pattern that we're seeing. Lots of young adults. It looks like a third of the hospitalized patients are 20 to 44 years of age. The dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine told America's Newsroom, the fatality rates for people aged 20 to 54 are 1% and lower. However, Hotez He responded that it's unknown whether the low fatality rates among young people is due to being able to survive on ventilators and intensive care. If that's the case, that's still a horrible ordeal for young adults. Uh, It's been widely reported that the elderly population is at greater risk, and that certainly is true than the younger population when it comes to the coronavirus. But a report Wednesday suggested that millennials uh, would do well to take the virus seriously. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued a new study stating that about 38 percent of the 508 patients being hospitalized in the country are between 20 to 54. The New York Times reported that about 20 percent of patients, including those in intensive care, were between 20 and 44 as well. Well, the paper's authors spoke to a professor of epidemiology at Columbia University who said those 20 and older have to be careful even if they think that they're uh, young and healthy. Uh, Dr. Hotez says that young people and college students must realize their health is at risk. The message is that we've been trying to appeal to younger adults and have them shelter away and do the social distancing and explaining why they're at risk for transmitting the virus to uh, vulnerable populations. Now it's a direct message. Your health is directly at risk. Now is the time to do that social distancing. So uh, we're still seeing the pandemic views of Miami Beach and spring break uh, fade away. So we've got to really hold that down to protect our health. We'll see how that um, how that goes. Well, as I mentioned earlier, after testing positive for COVID-19, Sandy Patty posted a video urging fans to take the pandemic seriously to avoid in-person social gatherings, including church and to wash their hands. It's not fake news. This is real, she says. This is everything they say it is, and we've got to take it seriously. She said uh, she's currently quarantined with her husband and in their home in Oklahoma City. Her caption on Instagram read, If you are not already practicing social distancing and staying home, do so now. This is what we can all do. This is how we stop the spread. God has given us faith, but he also has given us wisdom. Well, the 63-year-old Christian singer had been feeling sick after weeks of travel, was tested on Monday, and received her diagnosis on Tuesday. So far, state officials have reported 29 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Oklahoma. Known for hits such as We Shall Behold Him, Love in Any Language, and More Than Wonderful, she now serves as artist in residence at Crossings Community Church. She said she was grateful she has stayed away from others at church while sick and applauded the congregation for moving its Wednesday and Sunday services online. What a blessing that is to have that option. Many churches have similarly replaced traditional services with video messages or digital gatherings following state or local restrictions or the White House recommendations to avoid gatherings of groups bigger than 10. By the way, we are beginning this Sunday a special um, broadcast that will continue through this season and perhaps beyond Southwest Christian Live with uh, Scott Gilchrist of the Downtown Bible Class on uh, Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on our sister station, uh, True Talk 800. You can hear it online. You can also hear it with our 
our app uh, and uh, enjoy Southwest Bible Church, the service uh, that you would uh, most likely miss if your uh, your particular church does not have an online option. So check that out. We'll be talking more about that um, in the, uh, tomorrow on the program as well. Well, grocery shopping during the coronavirus pandemic. How safe is it? Dan Rice and I went grocery shopping yesterday for the first time since all of this broke. And it was interesting to me how empty much of the uh, many of the shelves were stuff that we you know, are so used to just being able to pick up was not available. I, we needed bread. I make Dan lunch every day. It always includes bread. There was no bread. Uh, there were hot dog. I shouldn't say that there were hot dog buns and there were bagels, lots of bagels and hot dog buns. There were three loaves of bread and none of them were the brand that we uh, normally use, but we took one of them because we needed bread. And that it was kind of surprising to walk in a U.S. grocery store and see so few groceries. But then you also wonder how safe is the, you know, navigating around uh, in the store with others. Well, shopping for groceries during the coronavirus. And by the way, as I was looking at how scarce some things were, I literally just said, Lord, thank you for growth. Thank you for this food that's here. Thank you that I, we have a resource to pay for it. Thank you for work to do. Thank a lot of people are struggling and uh, even when we have um, less than we're used to, we still have an abundance in this country. Just a side note. Anyway, shopping for groceries during the coronavirus pandemic can be pretty stressful with long lines at the registers or outside the markets for those that limit the number of customers allowed in. And stores um, uh, in short supply of specific food and toiletries can be somewhat frustrating and a new normal. But staying informed about the safest ways to shop can help relieve at least some of the anxiety associated with your next supermarket visit. Now, the Food and Drug Administration and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, along with uh, reputable doctors and organizations, have recently shared their guidelines for shopping during the pandemic, detailing the best practices for maneuvering through the uh, markets, handling money, and even uh, cooking it once you get it home. And then, of course, there's handling the carts. The FDA begins by reiterating that they are currently, uh, there's no nationwide shortage of food, even though it may sometimes feel like it, especially in the bread aisle, as I just mentioned. Food production. Production and manufacturing are widely dispersed throughout the U.S., and there are currently no widespread disruptions reported in the supply chain. The FDA writes that its uh, food products on their fact sheet, adding that the agency is closely monitoring that supply chains for um, the, the foreseeable, uh, foreseeable future. When it comes to handling the food or food packaging uh, itself, both the FDA and the United States Department of Agriculture say there is currently no evidence to suggest that COVID-19 can be transmitted by handling either. Though the FDA notes that if it is possible, the virus that causes coronavirus may be able to live on surfaces or objects. So the CDC adds that while it's possible to become infected by touching a contaminated surface and touching one's face, this is not thought to be the main way the virus is spread. The FDA has added that they have no evidence to support the notion of contacting coronavirus from imported goods either. Despite this, shoppers should continue to protect their own health and safety by practicing good respiratory hygiene, coughing into the elbow, staying home while sick, and personal hygiene, refraining from touching potentially contaminated uh, surfaces, properly washing the hands, and at all times during the coronavirus outbreak, even in the uh, supermarket, practicing social distancing. We survived it, and I think a lot of us will over time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part by Liberty Coin and Currency. Broadcasting from the abandoned halls of KPDQ. 
which was once a thriving metropolis of workers. But there are just few of us here now because people are sheltering in place, working from home. And um, that's just the way it is. Well, as the coronavirus outbreak continues to spread all across the country, lots of restaurants and fast food locations have closed their dining rooms in Oregon and Washington by decree. They're only offering takeout or delivery options. I've never had anything delivered. I'm not quite there yet. But those establishments that do remain open have reportedly increased cleaning and sanitizing protocols. Here, that would not be virtually any place except for a place like um, Starbucks, maybe. They have allowed people to come in and order, and they've, in some cases, removed all of the tables and chairs so people cannot sit down and make themselves comfortable. Well, the increased effort to keep all high-touch areas clean and to avoid, in many cases, hand-to-hand contact begged the question of whether it's safe to order delivery and takeout. Now, I asked that question long before the coronavirus, but anyway, the United States Department of Agriculture and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have said there is no evidence to suggest the viral, the virus rather, can be spread through food or food packaging. COVID-19 is believed to be able to survive on plastic or hard surfaces up to three days or for 24 hours on cardboard. To be safe, it's recommended to discard any packaging the takeout order comes in and transfer it to another dish. Opt uh, uh, to not receive utensils uh, in the delivery bag unless they are individually wrapped and instead use your own clean forks and knives at home. Also wash your hands with soap and water before and after handling the food and avoid touching your face, nose, mouth, with your hands. As the virus is mostly spread by person to person contact, aim to limit potential exposure by opting for no contact delivery. Most delivery services like DoorDash or Postmates, uh, they now have options via the mobile app to have the food orders left at the door or placed somewhere at the orderer's request. Uh, and so that's what they're advising us to do with that. Now, I'm hearing, you know, you can have the virus stay on your mail for a period of time. And I'm thinking about, okay, how can I? eliminate or minimize any exposure my mother might have. So we've established a new protocol for opening her mail. I'm going to, uh, she's going to wear gloves. I'm going to open the mail and uh, drop the contents out where she can pick it up so that, you know, there's no contact there. (laughs) Clark is suggesting I throw it at her. No, Clark, I'm not going to throw the the mail at my mother. But, you know, she's, uh, She's 89. I'm trying to think of what are the things that I need to do to protect her. So we're just adding new things to our um, to our protocols. Meanwhile, U.S. Senator Ron Wyden said on Wednesday that he's going to introduce legislation to delay the federal real ID requirements until at least September of 2021, citing the ongoing coronavirus public health crisis. Now, the truth is we would not have been ready by October 1st of this year uh, had this not happened. So it's kind of a convenient way to put off what we could not achieve here in the state of Oregon uh, anyway. But in a statement, Oregon senior senator, a Democrat from Portland, said that he had uh, had, uh, rallied support from Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, who's a Republican, Senator Steve Daines, a Republican from Montana, in addition to Senator Gary Peters, a Democrat from Michigan. Oregon is expected to be the last state in the country to comply with the 2005 Real ID Act. Federal officials said October 1st, 2020, for domestic air travelers to have a federally recognized form of identification to board planes. The law also governs uh, entry to military bases and government buildings. Oregon's current driver's license is not compliant because the state doesn't check rigorously enough for proof of citizenship and the state won't start issuing real ID compliant licenses until July the 6th. At least that was the original plan, and that's probably out the window, too. Well, Gas Buddy analyst Patrick DeHaan 
uh, was tipped off by users of Gas Buddy. It's an app with the Spur 7 BP gas stations on State Route 25 in London uh, that they had dropped below a dollar. This is a station in Kentucky, 99 cents for a gallon of gas. Uh, don't head there looking for a deal right now, though, because an employee at the station said that the price was already 99 cents on Wednesday and that they would currently sold out of fuel and didn't know when the pumps would be open again. Um, commenters on Gas Buddy say that the station is known for its low prices and is often very busy, but this was something else. Well, it was reported that um, the nationwide average, which is currently $2.20, could soon drop to $1.49, and that $0.99 would be a reality at some locations. A a combination of increased supply in Saudi Arabia and Russia with falling demand from efforts to stop the spread of the coronavirus are driving that trend. Can you imagine paying $0.99 for a gallon of gas? Wow. You could... Live the Life of Riley, which is a radio character from your grandparents' age, which was probably about the last time you uh, could get gas that inexpensive. An American Navy veteran who has been detained in Iran since 2018 and is serving a 13-year sentence was released on medical furlough today, or at least local time, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced. Mike White's release on humanitarian grounds was uh, conditioned on his staying in Iran. He's now in custody of the Swiss embassy, where he will undergo a medical evaluation. The United States will continue to work for his full release, as well as the release of all wrongly detained Americans in Iran, the Secretary of State said in a statement. Mr. White's family had said he traveled to Iran to visit his girlfriend. The two met online and was arbitrarily detained. He previously served in the Navy for 13 years. Years. He's the first American known to be detained in Iran since President Trump took office. He's accused of insulting Ayatollah Ali Khomeini and posting a photo on his social media. A spokesman for the White family said the family was grateful to the Iranian government for an interim humanitarian step. We continue to urge them to release Michael unconditionally so that he can return to the United States to receive the advanced medical care he needs. And as you know, The coronavirus is wreaking significant havoc in Iran. Meanwhile, a New Hampshire man who was beaten and tortured after being detained during a family vacation in Lebanon six months ago was released from prison on Thursday. His name is Amr Fakhori, a nationalized U.S. citizen, was arrested in his native Lebanon during a family trip in September. Mr. Fakhori, who fought in the South Lebanon army during Israel's occupation of the country, was taken into custody after a Hezbollah-backed newspaper accused him of torturing Hezbollah and Palestinian terrorists in the 80s and 90s. He was never previously accused of the charge, and his family and attorney deny it. Well, he was re- his release came, rather, f- after Senator uh, Gene Shaheen, a Democrat from New Hampshire, and Ted Cruz, a Republican from Texas, proposed bipartisan sanctions against senior Lebanese officials involved in the detention, and the State Department pushed for his freedom. During a news f- conference today to update the American public on the coronavirus outbreak, the president said that Mr. Fakhouri's release was a big thing and that he was on the way home. Today we are bringing home another... American citizen. Well, I thought I would end uh, this segment of today's program with a little bit of humor from the Babylon Bee. One of the headlines, professionals work tirelessly to discover which political party should be blamed for virus. Hope for figuring out which political party to blame for the novel coronavirus could be on the horizon as professional task forces have been assembled across various public and private areas of expertise and vigorous research is underway. So far, professionals are divided on which political party should drown in their own shame. But once that is figured 
figured out, they say they can move on to finding a cure for the vaccine or the virus. Uh, The uh, people are depending on us to set all other priorities aside and really let one political party have it over this whole thing. That's the job we've been called to. And we took our vow uh, to get it done very seriously, says Dr. Stripji of Columbia University. Professionals began assigning blame just as a federal health official warned that the virus will eventually start spreading in the United States. A clinical trial to determine which political party should be lambasted, tarred and feathered for the coronavirus started at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Oham- in Oba- <laughs> Omaha, <laughs> Omaha, Obama. Anyway, the National Institutes of Health said, we got to get to the bottom of this, President Trump said in a recent statement in a rare moment agreeing with his opponents in the Democratic Party. America is waiting, said Professor Angela Acer of uh, Corrigan Hills University in Maryland. We know some people aren't going to make it through this. Our hope is that at the very best on their deathbed, they can know which party to blame before they pass on. And then there's this. God to ignore quarantine and continue being everywhere. The CDC now recommends for everyone to stay home and avoid going out as much as possible. Despite this, reports are that God is breaking quarantine and going absolutely everywhere. Hospitals, nursing homes, prisons, wherever he is needed, God is going. He's reportedly visiting everyone and checking on everyone in this time of need and not using any amount of social distancing. God is said to be following the absolute best practices, though, and is not as uh, no risk of making people sick, but only making people better. We have absolutely no idea, uh, uh, no control. Over this guy, the CDC spokeswoman Jim Wells, which is extremely frustrating. We want to remind you, though, that you're not God, so please stay away or stay in small groups. God is also reportedly trying to get people to stop hoarding toilet paper and instead put their treasures in heaven. Treasures that don't include toilet paper. The Babylon Bee. You got to love them. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. When we come back, we'll hear from Doug Gaiman. Before you quit, everyday endurance, moral courage, and the quest for purpose. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest points out in his latest book that non-quitters have changed the world. And he asked the question, as you see your time and your joy being spent on something that isn't going the way you planned, or you're walking through a difficult experience that's been thrust upon you, some days you wonder if it's just better to quit. Whether it's now or later, we're all faced with a choice between good and easy, between continuing on through difficulty or giving up. When that day comes, what will you choose? Well, Doug Gaiman observed firsthand how God used one man's relentless perseverance to change a country, and it changed him. In his book, he shares dozens of stories of ordinary people like you and me who did extraordinary things for the kingdom of God because they simply kept going through pain, discouragement, through loss and failure. And he'll teach his readers, you and I, how to cultivate a sort of gritty perseverance that counts the cost and follows through. Become a person of courage and commitment. It'll cost you dearly, but it will change your life forever. I'm talking about his latest book, Before You Quit, Everyday Endurance, Moral Courage, and the Quest for Purpose. And I should mention the foreword is written by Luis Palau. Well, Douglas uh, Gaiman attended uh, Goshen College and Fuller Theological Seminary, completed master's and doctorate degrees in missions at Liberty University 
in uh, Pensacola, Florida. Since 1994, he served with Globe International, a mission-sending agency based in Pensacola, Florida. He became the director in 2001 and the president in 2004. He loves coaching and mentoring emerging leaders, helping them discover their gifted uh, giftings rather, and life direction. He and his wife, Beth, have uh, ministered in nearly 60 countries. They have four married children, 11 grandchildren. In addition to Before You Quit, he has authored three books. He loves writing, surfing, cycling, walking, and spending time with his family. But today he's spending some time with us to talk about this important book uh, that at some point in each of our lives will be very relevant, perhaps more so than we'd like to imagine. Before You Quit, Everyday Endurance, Moral Courage, and the Quest for Purpose. Douglas Gaiman, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Georgine. It's my privilege and honor. Glad to be with you today. Well, I was thrilled to see that Louise Palau, whom, of course, you know, we here in the Portland metro area claim as our own, uh, provided the forward, I think, giving us a much needed perspective on this notion of uh, enduring and uh, finishing, having the kind of uh, uh, moral courage that you write about in your book. Yes, it was a real honor that he agreed. Of course, being a, a person, an international evangelist, uh, I took a shot at asking him, uh, partly because I've been a member of NGA, the Next Generation Alliance, mm-hmm. for the past 10 years, as well as our organization. And I'm good friends with David Jones, who is uh, sort of the director of the Next Generation Alliance and has worked beside Luis for 40-plus years. I reached out to him and said, do you think Luis would be uh, willing to write the forward of this book, and, and David helped make that happen. Luis was very gracious to do it, so, you know, I'm just blessed that he would do that. And especially, as you probably know, he's battling cancer right now. Yes. He's beating all the odds. Uh, he is known as a man. He, he even talks in his book when he's his doctor asks him about, you know, how, how do you feel about finishing your life? And he said, well, I'm not finished yet. <laughs> That he is finishing well yeah. whenever God uh, puts that that uh, rope that tape up for him to run through. You write in the introduction yes. about uh, when perseverance was first powerfully illustrated to you. It was back in 1981. You were just 26 years old. Your family was nearing the end of a three-year internship in Southeast Asia. And you write about a, a, a gentleman who's uh, referred to as W.C. Can you tell us a bit of his story to give us some perspective on before you quit? Yes. Well, he, had, he and his wife and their first child served for a couple of years in Indonesia. And they lost their second child, an infant, uh, as a result of infectious pneumonia. This was back in the 60s came home to the United States to grieve through that devastating experience. The church sent them after uh, they had a chance of furlough to India to work with an evangelist who was preaching the gospel in India to tens of thousands, sometimes even more. Uh, That experience changed WC's perspective on missions and his own sense of calling. Uh, In the late 70s, he moved back to Southeast Asia with the vision to do the same, to preach the gospel to tens of thousands of people, starting in Thailand. I joined him as a young intern. Uh, I think when I joined 77, I would be 22 years old. Um, And we worked, my wife and I, with him for three years, kind of cut our teeth in missions uh, during those three years working beside him. And he started out with this massive vision to preach the gospel to the nation of Thailand, which, of course, you know, is 99% Buddhist. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was discouraged across the board by Thai leaders, by missionaries who had been in the country, 
And uh, not to be critical of them, but from their perspective, this just seemed like an, uh, a ludicrous idea. Well, he stomped, I remember he stomped back to the hotel where we were staying and kind of vented on me about nobody has any faith in this country and and uh, God's going to do something amazing despite what they think. And, you know, he, he maybe didn't have a lot of tact, but he had tenacious vision. Uh, and I, as a young intern, I was like, what do I know? And I'm just, I'm just here to help. We traveled around that country for three years in a beat-up old Ford van that we, my wife affectionately named Lazarus because it kept dying on us, and we kept having to raise it from the dead, and preaching in little villages, little forgotten villages over and over again to measly crowds. I joked that back in those days, it seemed sometimes there were more dogs and chickens in our meeting than human beings. <laughs> Um, and our experience was almost like proving that those naysayers were right. Um, but then in 1981, everything changed uh, for reasons we could only attribute to the sovereignty of God. Uh, I, I really don't know why God does the way does things the way he does, but we had this meeting up in the north of Thailand, north of Chiang Rai, way up in what was what is known as the Golden Triangle, and the meeting exploded. Um, first night, 300 people came. Second night, 600 people came. Then 1,200. Then 2,500. I'm, I'm rounding the numbers, but it was doubling every night. By the ninth night, uh, 20,000 people were on that field. Um, it was a phenomenon. It was, it was like living in the times of Jesus where the crowds just came. They started arriving in, in mid-afternoon during the day. People, somebody hired trucks. They were dumping off piles of people into the grassy field, and they'd sit down in the tropical sun and put newspapers over their head to guard their heads from the heat. The trucks would leave and come back with another load, and that went on for hours while this field filled up with people to hear the gospel. We hadn't done anything differently than we did for three years. We did the same thing on a measly budget staying in a little old abandoned schoolhouse at the edge of that soccer field because there wasn't any other place in the village to stay. And yet God did this amazing thing. He just preached the gospel to them like we had done for innumerable times before, telling, simply telling the stories of Jesus. Our goal was to just tell Bible stories. So we talked about the, we talked about the blind Bartimaeus who came and begged Jesus to make him uh, see again, and the leper who begged Jesus to heal him, and the woman with the issue of blood who reached through the crowds, pressed through the crowds for Jesus to, to touch Jesus, just the hem of his garment. We told those stories, and, and many others, night after night, told the story of the cross, how God sent his son in love who laid his life down for all of us so that our sins could be forgiven, and then it Jesus died and rose again in three days, and now he's a living Savior, we tell the people, and the same things that he did for, for these people in these stories in the Bible, he can do for you. And people just eagerly prayed to receive Christ, and the crowds grew. So that, that's what happened, and, and um, I look back on that, and, and I was, you know, was amazed by that, and the impact for me was what I learned from that was that if WC had allowed the lack of encouragement, the naysayers, the lack of finances, the delays, 
There's other meetings that happened over and over again where we were preaching in dusty little places to dogs and chickens. If he had allowed all of that to discourage him and for him to quit before that time we arrived in April of 1991 in that little village in the north of Thailand, if he had quit, he would not have gotten to that date with destiny. He would have missed it. Mm. And that really deeply impacted me. Like, we need to hang on to the vision God gives us and not let anything steal it from us. And, you know, it's like that scripture says through faith and patience, they inherited the promises. And so that's what I took away from that experience. You, for uh, about 40 years, um, have been uh, leading and mentoring emerging leaders. Uh, and I'm certain this this has a role in shaping your book and just the necessity of the book. But what have you learned about why uh, why people persevere? What drives the kind of perseverance you've just described? An individual who uh, is called by God, has a vision of what God intends to use him to do, and then persists, even though there are plenty of naysayers, uh, to see it through to uh, its completion. Why do people persevere? Yeah. Well, it's it's the same today, uh, Georgine, as it was in, in the Bible times. And Hebrews, the, you know, the, the famous chapter on faith, uh, tells us why Abraham persevered. Why did Noah uh, do that that immensely a great project that saved the world? How did he have the patience and endurance for 120 years to build an ark? This, what amounted probably to his neighbors as a, a monolith of folly. You know, why did he do that? Why did Joseph uh, survive many, many years of betrayal by his brothers, uh, unjustly imprisoned, forgotten in the prison? Uh, it's because of Hebrews says, and, and there's these over and over, the, the writer, um, I believe it was probably Paul, he says they saw things, they looked forward to a city, they were looking for a reward, mm-hmm. they saw promises, they greeted them from afar. These are different texts in, in Hebrews. They looked for a, a city that was a heavenly city. And what my experience is that people who endure have a vision for something that doesn't yet exist. Um, if it's a personal goal, like they want to lose weight or they want to run a marathon, they have a vision of something that doesn't yet exist in their own experience, but they believe that they can they can achieve it. That's that's just a personal thing. It might be very selfish. Not that it's wrong. It's just that they don't yet have something, and they're going after it because they have a vision. And for for us as Christians, when God gives us a vision to change the world in some way, we we take that on. We see it in in our heart, in our mind's eye, our heart's eye. God's given us this this task and we see something that could the world could be changed in some way as Christians we want to be changed for Christ we want people to to come to know him to be saved and to walk with Jesus and we envision that happening and and because we grab a hold of that and make that vision our own we are willing to endure even disappointments and delays that and, come along and the way stuff that causes us to suffer we're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Douglas Gaiman. Um, we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Doug Gaiman. He's the author of Before You Quit, Everyday Endurance, Moral Courage, and the Quest for Purpose, with a foreword by Luis 
Palau. Now, let me ask you, um, you write about three kinds of perseverance. Talk a little bit about these three kinds of perseverance that may give us the capacity to consider enduring challenges on a, a much larger scale. Yeah, the, the first kind of perseverance I call everyday endurance. It's the stuff we deal with every day. It's delays. Most of the time, for Americans especially, it's the, we lose time. We're very time-conscious people. And so everyday endurance is something we experience in the loss of time. Long lines at the supermarket, being stuck in traffic, uh, somebody's late to an appointment or we're late for, for an appointment because of our own procrastination or because we're being stuck in some way. So that that's the kind of everyday, everyday endurance is the thing that impacts all of us. And how we respond to that, how we manage our way through that is in part a reflection of our trust in the sovereignty of God. The second kind of perseverance is what I call aspirations for greatness. And that has a very human element. It can be personally centered or can be Christ-centered. Uh, but it's the idea of envisioning something that doesn't yet exist. I alluded to that earlier in our conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and so then the third kind of perseverance is what I call moral courage. And this is not voluntary. We don't voluntarily en enter into this. This is when a tragedy is thrust upon us, a loss of a loved one or a great disappointment, something that is just interrupts our lives in a big way. Joseph had to have moral courage when he was betrayed by his brothers and sold to the uh, traders that went to Egypt. And all of us from, from some time in our lives will probably face something fairly serious that will cause us to have moral courage, where we have to either endure and lean in on Jesus and find his help and be able to see our way through it, or, or we, may, you know, we may lose our faith or turn our back on God and, and uh, in defiance, like Job was tempted to do when he lost so much. You make the point that our culture's self-assurance can be damaging to our ability to persevere. Explain what you mean by that. Well, I say in the book that this a great good, this, this great good that we've all experienced in Western cultures where we have wealth, we have safety, uh, compar comparatively to much of the world, we have safety and wealth, we have access to health care. Uh, we have come to assume that we are able to solve problems in life. And so, you know, we just money can solve problems and technology can solve our problems. And we become very self-assured in our abilities to solve problems. And so when something happens to us that is beyond our ability to solve, we get lost. Even Tim Keller has commented about that in one of his books, I believe it's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He says that Western cultures, anthropologists have observed, are the worst at being able to manage difficulty. And I believe that a lot of it is because we have become so accustomed to things going well for us. Talk a little bit about the refining power of perseverance in our journey toward fulfilling God's purpose for our life. Well, I, I think the big, the, big, the big revelation that happens to us when we suffer, uh, when, and that's, this is true for everyday endurance or for an aspiration of greatness or something that we want to achieve takes longer than we think, or moral courage when we're, a, a tragedy is thrust upon us and we have to navigate our way through the grief and find a uh, you know, work through that process and find life and, and health and joy on the other side. Uh, all of those things, what they reveal about us is how badly do we believe in something? How, how much do we want something? 
Um, if I aspire to something great and then it's delayed, I think it's going to take me two years to get there and it takes me three. Uh, that will be a test and a revelation to my commitment. Uh, how, how badly do I want this? How long am I willing to plod? Am I willing to adjust my expectations? Or am I going to demand that things are going to happen the way I want? So it, it is a real revelation and a revealing of our character and our expectations. And in those moments when things don't go the way we want, that is where our character has the opportunity to grow because that is where we learn to, to lean in on Jesus Christ and trust him for our future and be willing to adjust our attitudes, maybe maybe adjust what we're doing, get some help, get some input, um, those kind of responses too that can help us on our journey towards what God wants. How important is rest and self-care uh, to our ability to endure and finish what we've started? Yeah, I deal with that in one of the chapters. I, I, I actually identify five. There's probably more. I just chose five that have been meaningful to me of things we can do during difficulty. Uh, in my own experience in difficulty, uh, difficulty reveals things about us. And it, it, what we can tend to do is lean into our weaknesses. So when people go into difficulty, this is where they can be tempted to uh, get back into addictive habits. Uh, or succumb to something that's a weakness in their life. And the only way we can resist that is by getting into a, a habit of self-care in some way. So the five that I identify, one is to read, meaning to, to have an attitude of learning. So reading the Bible, reading the good books from other authors who help us cope, um, just dealing with, with the subject that we're, we're struggling with. So reading is important, and I call that the cognitive function. That's where we are feeding our brains. Uh, it's a soulish thing, too, but let's just break it apart for a second. The second uh, exercise that's very important is worship, intimacy with God, and I call that more the intuitive function, where we lean on in on him on our hearts, on our emotions. We find joy in him. The Psalms are great for that, and, and I jokingly refer to psalms that are difficult psalms, like 137 talks about the Babylonian captivity and the suffering that the Jews uh, went through. And so that psalm is a psalm of lament. And this is one of the reveals about Western culture. We're not very good at lamenting. The third is create, um, creating, being creative. I, I picked up my guitar when I was going through difficulty. I started some new forms of athletics. Uh, just expressing myself through creativity, I found, was a better way than expressing myself through addictive behaviors. Uh, the fourth is, um, I forget what the fourth is now. Oh, it's uh, divert. <laughs> it's divert. Uh, I, it's similar to what the Bible calls repentance, but I didn't want to use a, a religious word. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people get stuck on that. But it's the idea of be willing, be willing to take a look at your life and change something. If it's not working, it doesn't mean you throw the entire uh, baby out with the bathwater, as we say, but change something, you know, decide that there's something in my life I've got to adjust. Maybe I need to take a Sabbath rest and just go on a long vacation. Maybe I need to adjust something else, but divert from your routines. And then finally, uh, the, the fifth one is, is um, now again, I've got a brain lock. So, but those four 
uh, are really helpful and absolutely. And, and they'll just have to, to help you get through. They'll just have to get the book to get the <laughs> get the rest of it. Well, I know. It's like, <laughs> it's like Henry Cloud said one time, every now and then I get stuck. I have to go back and read one of my stupid books. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, the book is titled "Before You Quit: Everyday Endurance, Moral Courage, and the Quest for Purpose." So much more in the book. You you do need to pick it up. It's published by Moody with a forward by Dr. Luis Palau. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a a delight to be with you, Georgine. Again, Doug Gaiman. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And as you know, these last few segments, we've been talking about how to survive the coronavirus social distancing. And with me in studio now to talk about another aspect of all of this is Jeff Tracy. Now, I refer to Jeff Tracy here at the station as your highness, your majesty, because when it comes to to grilling and throwing down, this man knows how to do it right. He is the host on our sister station of a couple of programs, one grilling at the green and the other the cowboy cook. And I thought we would have a little conversation about some of the stuff we can do during this time when we're all trying to be appropriately socially isolated, but at the same time coming together as a family and enjoying, uh, you know, good food that's healthy and going to help us survive this very sure. unusual season. Well, you got to keep at least an arm's length away from kumquats and lima beans and that social distancing. Yes. Distancing. Lima beans. I'm not sure they were designed for human consumption, but that's the subject for a whole nother program. We can do that sometime <laughs> because I share your animus towards those little buggers. Um, it's really a great time to do... Uh, what we would call dump dinners. And you've seen like Rachel Ray. You, yeah, you do yeah. Those. Get your crock pot and get a piece of pork or beef or whatever you want. Put it in there. Put some vegetables in, a little salt seasoning, um, maybe some uh, chicken stock or something. You know, most people have these recipes pretty much like that. But you can do that, get it ready. And so later in the afternoon <clears throat> uh, when everybody's home, and a lot of people are home now. Yeah. So it's not like you're cooking it and then it just kind of sits there on hold for several hours till everybody gets in oops sorry um because everybody's being pretty much confined so you can do that type of thing and it, it makes it a very easy dinner to make you probably have most if not all of it in your pantry or your freezer and you can uh do it with ease and once you you know plug in the crock pot and Put the seasoning and whatever you're going to put in there, and you don't have to worry about it for the rest of the day. And it smells so good throughout the oh, day. Oh, it makes everybody happy. Yeah. makes everybody happy. When now, you, you make me want to just run home and throw something in the crock pot. Okay, I'll drive. You run, okay? <laughs> <clears throat> but that's 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 one of the easiest ones, and the other things are, uh, you know, when you're, when you're looking at things, like for right now, maybe buy a little bit of a bigger roast. For example, I'm just... Kind of coming off the top of my head with these things for you, but it really makes sense to mm-hmm. me. You buy a bigger roast, so you have a little more leftovers because you're going to have the family at home. So you might have a second meal out of it. You might make sandwiches out of it. You might make a stew out of it. You might do – there's a myriad of things you can do with those types of leftovers, okay, for the basis of another meal. And that makes it a little easier. And quite frankly, multiple serving pieces of meat, so to speak, versus a single serving like a steak – they're pretty available still out there in the markets, at least the ones I've been to the last couple, three days. In so. fact, I went to uh, I went to Fred Meyer for the first time since this whole thing started. I was amazed at how little there was on the shelves. Yes. But I did buy meat, and I bought, for the first time that I can remember, I bought a roast. 
And my mom makes a great roast. You know, when your mom makes it, it always tastes good. Oh, but yeah. I looked at this thing and thought, what was I thinking? So put it in the crock pot. You have some great seasoning that I've yeah. learned from you. <laughs> put some of that on there. Throw in some vegetables, potatoes. Yeah, yeah, onions, carrots, whatever you want in there. Put it in there. Turn it on high. Put some put some stock in it. If you've got some beef yes. stock or yeah. or chicken stock, something like that. And put your seasonings in. Put the lid on it and let it go. Or you can do the same thing in your oven. It's a little shorter time period of cooking it in your oven. You can put it in a you know those old uh, graniteware blue yes um, roasting pans with the lids that we all grew up with. Yes. And put it in there. Same thing. Salt, pepper, seasoning, onion, potatoes. Um, I've kind of switched from using like russet potatoes into using red potatoes or Yukon potatoes. They cook faster and they're softer. Yeah. And and so you know you get old you gummers. So, you know, it works better that way. Now, are you grilling during this season? And I have to say, for listeners who may not know this, um, that you are a master griller. We've had a couple of events here at the station, and you've provided uh, some of the, I think you've done uh, steaks and you've done chicken. Just outstanding. And you just make it look effortless. I, on the other hand, stand in front of an open flame, and I just have that, you know, deer in the head. <laughs> Are you doing a lot of grilling during this time Is kind of a way to get out of the house? Oh, yeah. I'm, uh, uh, you know, because I live kind of far away, um, I get the opportunity to come up to the radio station. We're still quite sequestered yeah. here at the station. There's not a lot of people milling around. We're kind of on a skeleton cruise here. But, yeah, I go outside as much as possible and to cook because I've got several grills on our on our back porch on our back deck. So I like it, you know, and it gets you outside. Well, and you're good at it. That's the thing. I like the idea of grilling. I like the look of grilling. I like the the produce that comes from grilling. But when I get in front of that, that open flame, it just doesn't ah, quite turn you out the same. you got somebody will teach you now, Sussie. you got, okay. you got an in-house professor. To help you out. It's oh, real easy. What I'm hoping is that um, as we approach spring and summer, assuming that we're going to have a spring and summer that allows us to go outside and spend some time with family and friends, maybe you can teach us a little bit about sure. how to do it well. Because I've tried different things, and sometimes it's dried out, sometimes it's undercooked. You, on the other hand, you got it down. It's um, The biggest thing about cooking outdoors on a grill or a smoker, that type of thing, it's not about the time. It's about the temperature. That's where people get in trouble. Mm-hmm. They got to, you know, get a good digital thermometer, know your temperatures. There's all kinds of charts and information out there without me regurgitating them right now. But if a medium rare steak, if that's what you're going to do, you want to get it to about 130 degrees. That's a medium rare steak. If you want it a little more well done, so on up the food chart. And, the, and that goes the same with chicken or fish or what have you. But if you don't have a good digital thermometer, you're going to be guessing. Yeah. And that's the wrong thing to do because food is, especially big proteins, again, meat, fish, meat, chicken, fish, they're expensive these days. And so you don't want to waste it. Um, so you want to get your temperature right uh, of the heat source and you want to get your temperature right, internal temperature of whatever you're cooking. And if you get those two things down, you shouldn't have a problem. You know, what would be even less of a problem if you just come to my house and do I the do grilling? That. I can do that. <laughs> and I know one of your programs, the, the, the Cowboy Cook, you really are about bringing people together and building relationships. And I think around the dinner table, especially now, we've sort of lost the art of sitting down at the table without our devices, looking right. each other in the face, engaging in conversation, and really enjoying one another again. And the, uh, one great way to do that is around a great meal. Yes. Or in uh, my case, around a mediocre meal. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I really think that's true because when we grew up, 
um, that Sunday meal, that evening dinner, that was the focal point of the families gathering together. Ideas were exchanged. What happened today? We got in trouble, which was a lot of the focus at the table when I was there. (laughs) Um, You know, those things were discussed and it was all discussed in the family. And then we kind of when we turned into the, you know, the fast food generation after that. And, you know, that kind of started like when we were in college and then it just mitigated it out through our lives. So I've always been, you know, try to have a couple meals with your family a week if you can. Sit down with them. Sunday dinners are great. Um, you know, pick a night, doesn't matter. Monday night, Friday night, it, it doesn't matter. But try to get them together with a meal. Sit down, put the phones down, you know, make it so that, you know, you got the whole deal from salad to main course to dessert. So you kind of keep them occupied yeah. for about 45 minutes or so. And that works out pretty good. Yeah. In fact, we were being forced by this whole COVID-19 to revert back to the lives that our grandparents right. led, where they learned to enjoy one another's company. Uh, where they took the time to enjoy a meal, not in front of a television, not, you know, again, with the devices, but just enjoying one another, catching up, talking about things that you share in common. Sure. And so I think there's a benefit to that, even though it's sort of forced upon us under these uh, challenging circumstances. We need to take full advantage. Well, I think you're right. And I think it's a matter of also you're most people are probably overlooking a bit of something they should be appreciative of. And not the COVID-19 thing, but I mean, I'm talking about family and friends. Right. We kind of take those for granted a lot. I'm guilty of it. I know we all are. But when you're kind of forced into this situation where, you know, you've got to be home or you should be home, they're not putting anybody in jail for driving down the street, but you know what I mean. And it's forcing more interaction, even for just married couples, Mm -hmm. because our lives are so a million miles in each direction so fast these days. Um, I know it's my wife and I are starting to talk again, you know. Um, and, and we, we have a great relationship, but my point is spending more time where actually those things that you say, I'm going to talk to him about that one of these days, you know, him putting the celery on top of the refrigerator or something, <laughs> you know, he needs to, you know, I need to talk to him about that. But the point is it'll, it'll get the dialogue going yeah, right? like that. It's really good. And, you know, you, you get to a little more input from both sides about what's in the fridge and who gets it there and. What are you going to have for dinner? Well, I've certainly become more mindful of what's in the refrigerator. Uh, being at the grocery store just yesterday, and, and there was a lot of stuff that just wasn't there, very picked over. Yeah. And I'm sure it's going to be replenished, but it was just sort of shocking to me. And, of course, toilet paper was the big item. Oh, yeah. While we were there, they actually brought in a shipment of toilet paper, and you would <laughs> you would have thought they were handing out gold coins. Like People locust. were rushing, <laughs> rushing to the toilet paper. Next thing I knew, I, I actually needed some. I found myself over there grabbing up some, some toilet <laughs> paper. But it is an opportunity for us to reconnect and to maybe go a little deeper than we typically would yeah now you, you didn't forget how to do that body check did you when you reach it in there to grab, it, <laughs> grab that roll I was of ready. md i was ready yeah okay <laughs> i just want to mention to our listeners and i don't do this very often um uh, jeff tracy has two great programs on our sister station uh am 860 the answer the first program is on saturdays from four to five i should say it's not the first because the other one's earlier but anyway four to five on saturdays on am 860 the answer and it is grilling at the green. Now you are the grill master and you also love golf. So yes. you kind of mix those two things together. Yes. I've kind of brought the whole thing, um, the food thing to the golf thing. 
where a lot of the golf stuff you see on television is kind of centered around like five-star resorts and stuff. And that's great. That's fine. But most people won't ever get to go there. And most people won't get to spend $1,000 on a dinner of, you know, scallops and fillets. So I took it down a couple of notches and do that. And I get to interview some very interesting people, some celebrities from the world of golf and broadcasting. Oh, how fun. Now, the other program, which actually precedes Grilling at the Green, is Saturdays from 2 to 4 on AM 860, The Answer, and that's The Cowboy Cook. Well, that's the the host. The the name of the show is Barbecue Nation. Barbecue Nation. Yeah, and that show is syndicated, Um, not just here in Portland, but in Seattle, Chicago, Philadelphia. It's kind of across the You're kind of a big deal. Well, I need to lose weight. Yeah, I know, but it's it's coming. <laughs> yeah, I'm working on it. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a show that that's kind of took off, um, and I wouldn't say unexpectedly because we did a lot of hard work on it, but it's been very well received across the country, and it's still in syndication. So, um, and that show we is primarily about barbecue and smoking and outdoor cooking. Um, where there's a lot of people that are very much involved in it and not just at the competition level, but, you know, backyard weekend warrior guys, ladies who don't know how to cook very well that I <laughs> lend a helping hand to on occasion. Why, um, why are you looking over here? Uh, well, there was the reflection. There's somebody three <laughs> oh, oh, studios okay, down. Okay. I saw him. Um, anyway. Yeah, but that's, that's really uh, synergistic around outdoor cooking. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So our listeners can uh, check you out yeah. on, um, AM 860, The Answer, from 2 to 5, really. Yes. It's a long afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Very long afternoon yeah. with really good food at the end. Yeah, we, you know, you can always tell when you see the spots on their shirts <laughs> or their vests when they come in. Yeah, yeah. If it's been a really good day. Well, so. you know, I would love, as I mentioned earlier, I'd love to have you back where we could have some extended time to sure. talk about grilling and smoking and all of that. So love we're to. talking, ladies and gentlemen, about the kind you do with your food. Anyway, we can have a great conversation. Can I tell them what I call you? Sure. I call her the princess. <laughs> Although I don't, I have no idea why his majesty would refer to me yeah. in that way. Yeah, the princess. <laughs> well, I genuflect on radio <laughs> uh, to your skills on the grill and everything well, okay. else uh, outdoors. You are the true princess here. <laughs> well, so. thank you, sir. All right. Well, Jeff Tracy, thanks for joining us. You've Until got, next time. You've got it. Anytime. Okay. Look forward to it. All right. Thanks for joining You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. A couple things I want to let you know about. Southwest Bible Church is offering a live broadcast with Pastor Scott Gilchrist on our sister station at 10 a.m. Sundays. That's uh, uh, True Talk 800, and you'll have an opportunity to hear the program either on the station, on one of our apps, or online at True Talk. 800.com. So if you don't have a church that is going to be broadcasting the service uh, live or some alternative, you can check out Southwest Bible uh, Live with Pastor Scott Gilchrist of the Downtown Bible Class broadcasting here on Sundays, 10 a.m. on True Talk 800, our app or online at truetalk800.com. And this is new for us, uh, giving you an opportunity to fellowship with other believers, even though it's virtually, and hear a good word. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another.
another, be compassionate and humble. That's what the Apostle Peter said. Well, Ed Norwood, who's with Champions Unleashed, suggests that it's easy to become shaken during unprecedented times like this. People are afraid. Our society is living on one of the two extremes of the COVID-19 pandemic and social distancing mandates. In panic or defiance, people are stockpiling supplies, fighting over toilet paper, closing stores, bars, restaurants and churches, wearing masks and gloves. We are at war on our knees in society, faith and medicine. The coronavirus has no political affiliation, race or gender. But when our nation is at war, our armed forces comprised of both red and blue states fight a common enemy. I want to encourage you that what separates us can bring us closer. As we practice social distancing, we are cultivating unity nationwide, unifying against the pandemic by protecting our seniors and the chronically ill and strengthening our health care delivery system against COVID-19. Let's not only be kingdom people of purpose, but pragmatic, like-minded, sympathetic, loving, and compassionate to others. Don't get so caught up in the daily hysteria and routine that you forget your role and responsibility, how you can make a difference. In times of crisis, our words can bring stability and spark mass transformation in our homes, in our families, our workplaces, and spheres of influence. Seize the opportunity to do good now. Every day is an opportunity to defeat this giant of fear, an uninvited intruder. Every day can be a celebration of your best work, a reminder that we are wonderfully and fearfully made, fearless, faithful, and called to inspire the best in people in the worst of times. Touch lives, be remarkable, be and do awesome work, maximize the human experience. Nations are counting on you, on us. Well, this is a, a challenging time, but it is also a great opportunity for all of us to just slow down, take a deep breath and move forward in faith with grace and mercy and compassion and love and generosity and faithfulness, all of the things that we are called to do and equipped to be by the power of the Holy Spirit. So want to uh, continue to encourage us all to walk as we have been called as ambassadors of Christ. want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your extraordinary day. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.